This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode eight of On Another Track. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. Missouri's Josh Hawley will be the first Republican senator to dispute Biden's victory in the recent U.S. elections. The new Monaghan train hall is unveiled to replace New York's ugly Penn Station. And after 48 years, the UK will officially sever ties with the EU at 2300 hours this New Year's Eve. What else could happen in this festive world we're inhabiting this week? On another track is talking to people that we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. A lot of business stuff can be really dry, and that's why I always want to have the backstories, you know, because it makes it interesting, it makes it human, you know. Yeah, it's sunny behind the clouds. It's always sunny beyond the clouds. It's always darkest before dawn, so it's always raining here in BC. That's the voice of Remco Bergman of TOWK Consulting, based in Mission, British Columbia, here in Canada. When you first meet Remco, you're driven nuts by trying to place his accent. You won't get it, at least I didn't. Being from The Hague in Holland, but living in Canada for the last 20 years, he has a straightforward approach to business. It almost verges on black and white, with no grey. However, when you get to know him, he's the most pragmatic person you can meet. His organic business approach flies in the face of his personality, and he truly believes that to make a business strong and healthy, you have to distill the essence of the company and define its culture, and then stick with it. I started by asking Remco about TOWK Consulting and how he came to start it. Well, the interesting thing is everybody has questions. And what happens is, and we've talked about this in the past, as soon as you're extremely busy, that's when people call you and say, can you help me out? And if you're not busy, then yeah, you're not busy. You have this lull. So I found that with my own company, TOWK Consulting, I've done this on the side for a long time, since 2015. And what happens is it gives an outlet for companies to actually contact me. Now, I've had some business dealings with non-for-profits. And through the business analysis that I've been doing, we actually shut down two non-for-profits. Wow. Well, sometimes you have to take a step back. And this is the biggest problem with a lot of companies. As you know, I'm Dutch, so I'm fairly direct. There's there's no reason to sandwich all these problems and say you're doing fantastic, <laughs> but you're horrible, <laughs> but you have nice glasses. For a Dutch person, that doesn't work. That's one of the reasons we get into trouble. But when you look at business analysis, a lot of times it's, they say it's great, but it is relatively black and white. It's working or it's not working. You have to figure out why is it then not working? And what people tend to do in business, in my opinion, is they'll look at the problem instead of just stepping back and looking at the whole. Because what in this problem is actually the problem? So they'll be trying to look at the sales side of things because a lot of people want that revenue. So they go into the numbers game, just talk to hundreds and hundreds of people. And if two or three come back and then it's a numbers game. Being from Europe, we know it's not a numbers game because you have to really think about this. Put time and effort where you should be putting time and effort. Do your research and then do instead of cold calling, I call it warm calling. Do it that way. 
But then they'll say there's no money coming in. And then you drill down into that problem because it's the sales guys, it's the salespeople, it's the salespeople. In the end, it turns out that the product is never on time or there's no clear communication with the accounting department. So they send out very nasty letters saying you need to pay, you need to pay, which is understandable, but clients may get ticked off. So you might lose clients that way. So the sales are doing their best to get it in on the front end and we lose things on the back end. It's not necessarily a very focused approach as such. Yes. It's more of a homogenous approach. It's kind of looking at the whole body. You know, it's not the individual tree in the woods. It's the whole forest, you know, and where the gaps are, where the, the roots and the tracks are through there and how you can make them connect up and, and really make sure that we're keeping our finger on the pulse and all aspects of that whole body, so to speak. Is that is that really your kind of approach? That's my approach. It's, it's a very holistic approach. Just because you signal a problem in one spot doesn't necessarily mean it is the problem. Got you. I, I've been reading a book, uh, The McKenzie Way, and, and it's quite interesting that they, they, they create a hypothesis and they look at a problem and they say, okay, so is that the only problem we have? And a lot of times you'll have a variety of problems. Then the question is, what's the common denominator and how do they exclude each other? And then you eventually end up with maybe one or two issues in the company that need to be addressed that are completely separate, aut autonomous, but do have merits on their own. And now you're getting to the crux of the problem. And that is one of the reasons with, for example, coming back to those non-for-profits, it's sitting down and saying, do you have a right to exist? And that's a very tough question for non-for-profits because you are getting government money and you have to present. Now, the system is set up for the non-for-profits a lot of times that as long as you can prove where, where you want the money and why you want it, you're good to go. But the question is, is that effective use of your resources? And in this case, these two companies, it wasn't. Okay. So I want to sort of split things up. I want to get a little bit about your background in a moment, because as you alluded to the listeners, you, you come from Europe originally, from Holland. But I wanted to just dive in a little bit more in the business first, just because I'm, I'm intrigued by something. Why did you go down the consultancy route? Why? What was there kind of that choice that you made at the time? What inspired you to do that? I get bored really quickly. The biggest problem that I run into in anything that I do is that I comprehend things too quickly. And it's just one of the knacks that I have, and which is my biggest downfall. So with a consultancy gig, it's more like a project management style of approach to business because there's a start, there's an end, and it's a short period of time and somebody has a problem. That's what I love. I love solving highly complex problems. And it doesn't matter if it's a biological problem, a mechanical problem, business problem. For me, they're all the same. And what I then do is once I have this defined as a shorter period of time, I don't lose interest and I don't lose focus. Once I have repetitiveness in my business, I tend to lose focus because it doesn't interest me anymore. I've set it up, cleaned it up. Everybody knows what they have to do. And for me, let's go on to the next project. Well, that's very interesting. So give me a little bit of background to Remco Bergman here because your background must have set you up for that. I mean, for instance, where did you start? In business, for instance, you know, when you did your first job after leaving university and school, what was the first thing that you did? So that's an interesting route. I'll, I'll start at the beginning. I wanted to be a vet. Then it turns out to be a vet, you have to cut into animals. Yeah, that didn't really resonate with me as much as I thought it would. 
So then I thought the next best thing is to become a farmer because I love working with my hands. They're always solving problems. They're always on their own and they have their own timetable. So that was interesting for me. So I went into university, agriculture university, did about a year. And my father-in-law, then was my girlfriend's dad, said, what the heck are you doing becoming a farmer? You'll never be able to, to provide for my daughter. You got to go into sales. And he was a director of sales. So I said, okay, what's that really look like? In my opinion, salesmen are almost like lawyers. They always know better. They always have these excuses for everything. They've got comebacks for everything. So that actually fell into place into who I am as a person. I'm a Mr. Know-it-all, and I know this. And it irritates people, but then I come up with the proof, and then people really get irritated because I didn't only say what I was going to do, but I did what I said I was going to do. So we have this internal dynamic that I'm always fighting myself and always trying to present myself. But that's how I basically started into business. I'm intrigued by that know-it-all, right? Because often as not, and I know we've worked in business before for, for many, many years in the past, um, how do you get away from that feeling of being the know-it-all? Because that can always come across as not necessarily a negative, but a kind of an attribute that people don't always kind of, you know, go towards. You know, they, they tend to sort of say, wait a minute, this this guy knows it all and he's he's really kind of getting our back up. So what's the strategy that you would use to maybe smooth the ripples out on that kind of a relationship so people buy into you, first of all? Oh, that's that's the everlasting internal and external struggle that I go through. Um, one of the companies that I ran years ago, uh, they hadn't made a profit in many, many years. So the owners asked me to, to step in and have a look at it. Now, the problem wasn't as big as everybody thought it was, but everybody was doing their own thing, but we were not a cohesive group. So one of the things that I tried to do to soften the blow a bit is figure out within the organization who I need for what. And then give those people the responsibility to take care of their own business. That way I create more of a homogenous group of people that do want to go towards where we need them to get to. Now, one of the examples we used in the past is we would have town hall meetings. And the first town hall meeting I set up was an interesting one because we everybody knew we were losing money, but nobody could put their finger on why and where. And I bluntly, openly put the cards on the table. Now you have two camps. You have senior leadership who were scared and you had your staff who goes, that makes sense. But how do you bridge the two? And the bridging is the problem. I strongly believe, and I've had this happen a lot of times in business in Europe, North America, people are afraid to be more open. And there's two trains of thought in that, that if you keep your cards close to your vest, you're on top. But the problem is you always have to be on top. So you're always trying to figure out what you said to whom, where, when. And in my case, I've let that go. So what you see is what you get. Nothing more, nothing less. And it makes my life a lot easier. Now you also have to deal with personalities. So some people appreciate this approach and others do not. And in this case of this company that I restructured, senior leadership, a portion of senior leadership did not appreciate that. And there's not a lot I can do about that. So in the end, once I did my job, after about two and a half years, uh, we, we terminated the contract. Purely because there was nothing there to move 
forward with, with that leadership. Yeah, and I totally get that. And and again, we're going to be a bit biased here because we've both got European background, but I often is not fine when I come into a North American situation, there is a fear of somebody being very direct and very open and very kind of honest about things. And it doesn't sit well with uh, senior leaderships in many, many North American companies. Now, I'm generalizing there because there's lots of great North American companies that have switched that around in recent years, in the last five or 10 years. And, you know, you've only got to look at the Googles of this world, the bigger companies where there's more of a, a different approach to things. That, you know, I, I often said to one of my managers, you know, when I was managing a team is try and be a bit more vulnerable. Try and be a bit more open, you know, to show your cards, to show how you might be struggling with a problem and then entice your team to come in and assist you with that. And that person that was a lady at the time, actually, she could not do that. She said, I, it's just not in my DNA. I can't let my cards down. I can't let my guard down. And so how do you, how do you tackle those problems with a company who's really got very closed walls? You know, they're, they're very tightly knit, but they just don't want anything to come in and reveal the true nature of what's happening behind the scenes. You know, it's a bit like the duck. Ducks on the water and gliding along. <laughs> the legs are going 10 to a dozen under the water. So how do, you, how do you just take that apart? Is it possible to take that apart in an easy manner? I think the question is, if you can figure out what the culture is and you can figure out what makes people tick, one of the things that I would ask is, what are, they, what are their personal goals and what are their business goals? So if somebody's personal goal is to get in at 8 and to leave at four o'clock sharp, all right? So we have to set the work environment up in a way, in a fashion that you can come in or she can come in at eight and leave at four. Others can get mad at that. Others stay two hours longer, three hours longer. Now the question is, what is your thought process? What are you looking for? Maybe that person would like to have more of an escape and, and work is the escape that they have, okay. Do they have enough work to satisfy those 10 hours? Because I'm only paying them for what we agreed upon in the contract. So it becomes a bit of psychology. And I know that one of your guests, and thank you for the segue, was a psychologist who went into sales. And he actually, when I listened to the pod, a lot of the stuff that he said resonated with me about how he approaches sales. And he doesn't approach it as a numbers game either. There's strategy behind it. And I think when you look at a business and you, you're trying to help that business get to the next level in business, it's very important to remember that you're talking about resources and the resources are human. And human resources are the most valuable in your company. I can buy a new computer if I don't like it. I can buy a new mouse. I can buy a new car. I can buy a new forklift. That's simple, simple. But Having the right team, and I think that's the crucial point that you just made, having the right team is, is instrumental in getting your company moving forward. I just left another company with a project that was the end of my contract. They have a very interesting culture. They think they're young and dynamic and, oh, they're, they're, they're with it and they're, they're active, but they have a very, very toxic environment. And you'll see this because the leadership will use people as pawns in his game. Now, what then happens is the rest of the company also sees that. And this is, I think, where a lot of senior leadership should actually look more inward than outward. If your team fails, it's a management fault. It's not your team's fault. Like when you look at a football game, a, a person can drop the ball, but if he always drops that ball, then it's up to the coach, the team, the manager to fix that problem. And it might be as simple as giving them new gloves. 
And th this is the crux. If you figure out what the problem is by taking that high level approach, sometimes the solutions are quite simple. I agree with you there, actually. You know, again, it's all about asking the appropriate questions, you know, at the appropriate time and, and also being humble and actually putting yourself into that person's environment and their shoes. And some of the best managers I've ever seen that I think there's a series that was on television probably 10 years ago was about managers going back down to the shop floor and actually getting back down and dirty and doing what they originally did when they first started in the business. So they could realistically see what was happening and what the daily challenges were for their teams, you know, because they were so disconnected when they're in the C-suite and, and way up the ladder. And that was very refreshing for me seeing that, you know, that's a great approach, but it doesn't work for every company. No. So what happens to me is when I, when I switch positions, other jobs, what I like to do is take the first two weeks and go to every apartment and work and talk with those people. A very, very interesting story, what happened years ago. I started with a company that expanded polystyrene, and that's a packaging company. So I did the same thing I always did. I became a sales manager, and I went to the, to the floor, and I talked to everybody in the floor. So I was replacing butterfly valves, and I was putting in large dyes to, to manufacture products. But I also went with a quality manager. Now, the interesting thing is in polystyrene, and, and Forgive me, it's a little bit of a long story, but in the polystyrene, there's different types. And one of them had a specific fire rating. Now, the biggest problem with the fire rating was that it was official because it was the properties of the base material, but it didn't have additional fire rated properties. I get a phone call early one morning. My sales guy had just sold a B train full of polystyrene products, and they were not being let into the yard of our client. Why? because there was a fire rating issue. And the funny thing is because I had talked to the material and quality manager, I knew everything about that product. So the sales guy calls me in panic and he is like literally panicking because that means he'll never be able to sell the product again and we gotta do all these things. So I just asked him a simple question, what is the fire rating they're looking for? He explained it to me. I said, okay, the product that you have on the truck exceeds that fire rating by a factor of two. He says, do you have proof of that? I said, yes, because the fire rating for the base material already exceeds the request from your client. He goes, can you have that information? And by then we didn't have any cell phones with uh, emails and all that. We had, or we had email, but we didn't have what we have right now. So we sent an old fashioned fax and we faxed it to him. So the B train was at the door for 15 minutes and was let in and we've never had an issue ever again. Now, the moral of the story is you need to know what you're doing. And my sales guy comes back to me and says, how come you've been with the company for not even a month and you know this stuff? And I've been with the company seven years. So my Dutch reaction is, is because you're doing it wrong. But the truth of the matter is because I went to all these different areas, I was able to solve a lot of problems or come up with solutions really quickly because of the knowledge that I got. This is how I've operated all my life. This is how I do it. I ran a flagging company. First thing I did was get my flagging certificate. Why? I need to know what people on the floor do. And I need to then understand how to translate what their needs and requirements are back to senior leadership. Superb. And I mean, that is the basis of great business, isn't it? It's about knowing the different um, attributes that your company has 
and how you can deliver those services. And also it gives you an insight into the people that are within those different departments and their strengths and, and sometimes where they need to be developed as well, which is a good thing. Listen, we'll go back to business in a minute. I'm, I'm, I'd am love to find out a bit about the backstory of Remco Bergman because you did allude to people, uh, of the listeners, that you were from Holland originally. And I wanted to know a little bit about Number one, so were you actually born in Holland and then came to Canada or was it the other way around, born here and then went back to Holland? What was the kind of gig there? We crossed the pond a couple of times. Okay. So I was born in the uh, fill in the blank. And in that period, I'm, a, I'm at the end of the baby boomers, really at the tail end. Yeah. So in that period in the, in the Netherlands, we lived in a city called The Hague and there was always a shortage of space. So my parents looked at this and the, and the Dutch government said, please get lost out of the Netherlands. So if you can leave, we'll be happy to because we're getting too full. It's getting overcrowded. So please leave, please leave. So my parents saw there was an opportunity to immigrate to Canada. So they took that opportunity. We got on the boat and we came to Canada. We sailed up to St. Lawrence and we got out, I think in Montreal, got on the rickety train and we went to Guelph. Wow, so you went to Guelph originally. Ah, that's yes, interesting. We have yes. a we have a common link because I have an uncle who actually emigrated to Guelph in 1966. Uh, that's a year after us. <laughs> interesting. So we started there, and then my dad got involved in the drug scene for youth, helping youth out. And my mom was homesick after about 10, 11 years. And seeing that there was so much youth that were in drugs because my dad was in that scene, mm -hmm. seeing how many young lives are being destroyed, my mom said, well, if that's going to be what's happening to my kids or the potential of my kids, because we already had, I had a brother and a sister as well, Canadian brother and Canadian sister. So we took the family and we went back to the Netherlands. And that was in 1975. Interesting. And where did you end up in the Netherlands when you went back? So we went back near The Hague in a city called Rijswijk. My dad got a government job. And then the whole organization moved from one city to the east of the Netherlands in Zwolle. And they set up shop there. And my dad became head of the facility department. And then he ran it like any normal person would do. Look at the budget. How can I make the budget stretch? And he ran into the same problem that I'm running into. Senior leadership says, no, 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 no. That's not how you have to do it. So I think my biggest problem is I inherited some of his honesty. My dad never liked dishonesty. He passed away too soon, but he never liked dishonest people. He just called it as it is. You know, that's a great thing to hear. And, you know, that's a great foundation for not just you as a person doing a job, but to set your kids up. Uh, well for life but where it comes into conflict and this is where I often find it now is that you're brought up in that honest environment and you're very straightforward spades to spade when you get into work situation you suddenly realize that not everybody's brought up in the same way and not everybody calls a spade to spade and it's very much a political environment and if you've never had any experience of being a politician or being in a political environment you are the sink or swim. It's a very difficult baptism of fire. I imagine you, you were in Holland for how long before you came back to Canada? Almost 30 years. Oh, so really, you were European through and through. I mean... Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So did you find it a cultural shock? Or was it a cultural shock in Holland, for instance? I mean, when you first started working in business in Holland? No, because when I came back to the Netherlands, I still had to do my university degree. So I had a lot of schooling to do. So you, you acclimize quite quickly. Okay. And being in the Netherlands, everybody's very direct. 
So having that background that I have of honesty and, and being very direct, it, it didn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was always who I was. And due to my parents, because my dad is Dutch and my mom is Dutch, so it's a very direct type of culture I grew up in. Very black and white. You said it as a call of spade is spade. And this is what we've always done. So going back to the Netherlands, not a culture shock. And then in 2003, I went to a buddy of mine's wedding and then I got homesick. So I went to a wedding in on Toronto and I got homesick and I wanted to go back to Canada. But I didn't want to go back to Ontario. I wanted to go to the mountains and I wanted to go to the coast and I wanted to see bears and, and whales and, you know, that romantic dream of going west. Yeah, I totally understand it. I remember watching Kim Cattrall on Who Do You Think You Are? as a program about, you know, finding out what people's backgrounds. She's originally from Manchester in the UK. Her father absconded to Australia. But they were doing some filming in Vancouver. And that was just before I came to Canada in 2009. And it sold it to me. When I saw Vancouver, I thought, i got to go to that country. So anyway, you carry on with your train of thought. You got homesick, got back on. I assume you flew what straight. Where, where did you go to? Where did you land? So we, um, we applied for Canadian citizenship for a permanent resident in 2003. We got it awarded in 2004. And we got it awarded the day we were in Vancouver to have a look at where we wanted to live. Because we knew we were going to go to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. We just didn't know where. So the way we set it up is I live in a city called Mission, which is about 40,000 people. But it's a relatively stretched area. It's actually the... Fraser Valley Regional District. It's it's quite a large area, but it's on the the foot of the mountains at the uh, the uh, West Coast Mountain Range, and it's a gorgeous area. It's still nice and uh, spread out. Uh, it has a very town like feeling to it, but it is a city, right? And it has the the West Coast Express, which is a train going directly from Mission, where that's where it started. By the way. Mission is also where the biggest train robbery in Canada oit, uh, ever happened. Is that right? <laughs> that's a mission. That's correct. <laughs> and the train goes from Mission to downtown Vancouver and back. So it goes four times in the morning, four times at night. So I thought whatever happens, Mission would be about the furthest away I'd like to live. It's about an 80-click drive from where I live to downtown Vancouver. We are right in the cusp of Highway 7. We're right in the cusp of Highway 11, right on the cusp of Highway 1. So it's a very easy commute. And it's the same commute I used to have in the Netherlands. So the idea was to start off in Mission, which is about 80 clicks, and then do consecutive rings of 20 kilometers inward towards Vancouver and see where do we want to live. So we landed, I think it was October 1st, 2004, for an orientation. We started a mission. We had 17 days. At the 15th day, we go, oh my gosh, we got to see the rest of Vancouver. Wow. And then we headed back to Vancouver, did a little bit of touristy stuff in Vancouver because we already knew that we mission is where we want to live. And we've been here now more than 15 years. My wife has a, a yarn store downtown in Mission. That's her passion. And we've settled in. We know the mayor. We know the council members. We're a part of society. I'm with the Mission Hospice Society as a board member. I used to run the Mission Soapbox Derby for almost 10 years. I approached it as a business. I approached one of the schools that does a business course and said, why don't you take us as a business case and create marketing material and business materials and let's do meetings around this and let people become chair of a meeting so they understand how that business works, but then from a real life perspective. So I ran that for about 10 years, been on the Economic Development Committee, and we had to come to a country, you have to give back. So that was our giving back to the community. 
Totally. I totally agree with you on that. That's phenomenal. That's a bit of a backstory. <laughs> yeah, love it. Love it. But in, I'm intrigued to find out, how did you find your first job? But because not just coming to, you know, like a new area, but coming to a new country, technically being an immigrant, because you were, you were immigrating back into the country. How did you go about finding your first job? So that's quite interesting. Before I left the Netherlands, I had a buddy of mine who knew somebody who had a underground mapping tool, a gyroscope-based mapping tool, very unique in the world. And he was looking for distributorships all over the world, but he needed somebody he could trust. So we had a meeting. He's a Dutch gentleman who lives in Belgium. We hit it off right off the bat, and I got a contract to go all over the world selling and setting up distributions to this product. And I had that company for about seven years. Then the economy took a nosedive, and everybody tightened their belt. And that was the end of that. So at that period, I was, again, getting less jobs because I was so focused on Europe and actually the rest of the world. I didn't make a large group of clients within North America. So it's a little bit more difficult. So I did a bit of technology brokerage on the side, same consulting side. So finding technologies that other companies might be interested in. Got you. And then selling them those technologies. So that worked out for a while. And then I met somebody who says they're looking for a manager, which is Improtech Systems. And they were looking for a general manager. And because of my background and the diversity of my background and the fact that I have touched on so many different aspects of business, including operations and business development and sales, but also business management, they say you'd be the ideal client candidate to look at this company and help us restructure this thing. And that's in a nutshell how it started. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Remco Bergman of TOWK Consulting. I wanted to ask Remco next about his time at Improtect and how he made the company successful. What were your first big challenges when you went into Improtect? What would you say were your, you know, you did the, the survey, you figured out where the kind of weaknesses were, the strengths were. What, were your, what was your overview of the company when you first saw it? I think the biggest thing is you asked about culture shock. I, I didn't think there was a huge culture shock until I was dealing with people on a daily basis. The mentality in BC, for example, is completely different than what I was used to in Europe. The directness was not there. Uh, the fact that people would talk to you but not explain, really explain what they thought the problem was. And it's not a trust issue. It's more of a way they they do business here. It's more of a, I, I go to work, I do my job, and then I go home. Whereas my mentality is, I was hired to do this job. I get paid to do this job. These are my roles. These are my responsibilities, and I'll go for it. So coming here, trying to figure out what makes people tick, that was the biggest problem. So when you actually got into the company, what were the first things that you saw that you needed to change? And and what did those changes do to improve the situation? How did they improve it? One of the things that everybody looks at is the sales perspective. You need more money. You need more money. You need more money. And what I did is I went to the back end and said, okay, so where are we wasting money? So there's a few things that I saw quite quickly is that we had a shortage of shelf space in the warehousing. But what we had on the shelf had been there for seven years. So now you have to make the tough decision. What do you do with that? Do I add a warehouse or do I start cleaning up what I have? And that's what I did. I start cleaning up. We threw product away. We wrote products off. 
in the end, my philosophy when it comes to shelf space is it costs money. So figure out what the square footage cost is on a monthly basis. And if you've got a pellet spot, which is about 11 square feet, you're, and you're looking at about $2.75 per square foot to rent it, it's X amount of money per month. And if you've kept a product in that spot without moving it for six years, <laughs> sorry, but that's a huge drain in your capital. So now you're spending money to save money, but you're actually spending money, which makes no sense to me. Being Dutch, we're also very cheap, so we're looking at it from that perspective. So are the Scots. We're very economic in the way we think th about things. But that was intriguing, actually, because not a lot of people would approach it that way. Because most people, as you rightly said, would say, oh, we've got to fill the hopper. It's the sales hopper. That's what really drives the business. And all the inefficiencies in the business kind of not necessarily disappear, but they get covered by the volume of sales. That's right. What you did was you approached it from the other end is, you know, what's what's the infrastructure? What do we have already have here? And how are we using that infrastructure? And that's a really, really different approach, which for me is quite eye-opening because well, what were the economies of, of scale did you get when you finally figured out that's where some of our problems are, and you got rid of that excess baggage. What what was the end result in the profitability, the bottom line? So the profitability was I didn't need as much storage space anymore. So one of the things that we did, and, and I, I shared this with senior leadership, and they were just looking at me because it's something they hadn't thought of. Because the thought process for a lot of companies is the biggest cost are staff. So let's get rid of staff. Okay, that's great. But do we have enough staff or do we have too much staff? And in a lot of cases, when I looked at this company in particular, we didn't have too much staff. We had inefficiencies in staffing, which was in the production side. So eventually, every time somebody in the production area fell away, I did not replace that person. And I told the manager, you're going to have to deal with this. So we went from about 10, 11 people. We went down to six. But to do that, we needed to change how we manufactured signs. We had to be more efficient. And in the end, before they shut down the manufacturing plant and brought everything back under one central roof, because they had built a large manufacturing facility, with those six people, about 75% of their time was filled with manufacturing signs. 25% was just cleaning up and doing whatever with the same capacity they had before, but it was effectively using their resources more solidly. On the warehouse side, we were able to clean out 60 pallet spots, which is unbelievable. So instead of adding to my warehouse space, I could actually make my warehouse space smaller. Mm -hmm. And then on a granular level, because we had a company that manufactured signs, we had all kinds of reflective material. So there were specific products that we sold from specific suppliers and the suppliers would have pre-sheeted material. So when you have a post and you want to protect the post, you would put a red band on the post. But there is a uh, like a holder for that, a product that you can put on your, on your post and then you can cover that with the sheeting. So it's easily removable, but there were four or five different sheeting colors that we would need at any given time. Some were, were moving faster than others. But nobody had thought to talk to the manufacturer and say, can I get an unsheeted product? And they said, yeah, of course you can. So what I started doing is buying unsheeted product, which is cheaper, and then seeing how much I would need on a yearly basis and have my sheeting department put the right color on when I needed it. So the manufacturing time went down dramatically. I was just in time with that. 
Clients could get it within 10 minutes, even if they wanted polka dots, we would have it in the back. They would just put polka dots on it. But that's a philosophy that nobody had because people would say, well, no, we have to buy it as is. But nobody talks to the supplier and says, do we need it this way? So is it really taking a much more, uh, again, you said a homogenous or kind of um, homopathic sort of route regarding business, you know, looking at the whole body and saying, okay, don't let's look at the kind of result of a sickness. Where do we need to dial in and actually improve the overall health of this organization? And you took a very different approach. And so did it have, so really what I'm trying to get to is when you looked at the kind of bottom line, okay, from when you took the business over, you know, uh, in 2011 or 12, I can't remember when you went in there. And then when you left that business two or three years later, what happened to the balance books? What was the difference in your opinion? So when I left, it was one of the only branches that were profitable. So the first year we brought the cost down because they were they were losing about $400,000 the first year. So when I took over, uh, we still had a loss, but it was $150,000. The second year we had a loss of $400,000. But we could prove, and I could prove that if we didn't do what we had done, we would have had a loss of well over $600,000. So in that third year, which is the real transition year, we almost broke even. And then in the fourth year, we started to make a profit. Now, the other thing that we had done, and which is unheard of in the construction industry, is I would sit down and talk to my clients and say about the payment structure that we had. So at any given time, our accounts receivable were over 90 days, and that was about 30% of our outstanding debt. Within a year and a half, we had only 5% over 90 days, and I knew exactly why. 85% of our clients paid within 45 days. And one of the things my salespeople would tell me is, we're going to lose tons of business. We're going to lose tons of business. And my reply has always been, business is a two-way street. I gave you a product, you give me money. If you haven't paid me, then there's two ways to look at it. Uh, you're not the reputable company you said you are, or, which is worst case scenario, I think I got to get a lawyer because I think I'm dealing with a thief. <laughs> that straightforward Dutch approach. I love it. <laughs> Mind you, I don't use that terminology with my clients, but I do say, if I give you something and you haven't given me anything back, how would you categorize yourself? Well, okay, so this is a really interesting point, and this is why I do this podcast, because I really want entrepreneurs and business people to really get some benefit from this. So that's a, a something you really keyed in on there, bad debts or accounts receivable over 90 days. Now, commonly in the kind of construction industry, from my background in the construction industry, 45 days isn't unusual. It can stretch to 60 days sometimes, especially with holdbacks and what have you. How did you go about, what were the practical things that you did to bring that down to what I call a very reasonable level so it wasn't a debt or a big anchor in the neck of the company? I think the biggest problem is communication. As soon as a salesperson sells a product, they're done. The whole back end of supplying the product and, and getting the accounts receivable all up to, that's not their prime objective. Their prime objective is sales. And this is where the North American approach in businesses and sales, for example, is slightly different than the one in Europe. Being from the Netherlands, as a salesperson, you are the project manager. So your client, you have to deal with that. If there's a shipping error, you deal with it. If there's a problem on payment, you deal with it. If there's a technical difficulty, you deal with it. So you're the project manager. And underneath you, you'll have a group of people that work together with you for that, for that client. 
And under the client, they have the same thing. They'll have accounts receivable or accounts payable. They'll have their ship or whatever. So it's aligning all those people. So I would align my shipper with their shipper. I would align my accountant with their accountant. But I would always conduct the business as being in charge of the communication between the two parties. So I would always know what's going on. It's the openness. Now, very interesting is one of our clients had an outstanding debt of almost 100 days, 120 days, and was $80,000. And for us, that's a decent amount of money. It's a good client. So I asked my sales guys, why aren't they paying? Oh, they always pay. Yeah, but why aren't they paying on time? Yeah, but they always pay. They're big. You can't you can't rock the boat. You can't rock the boat. They did, I think, about five hundred thousand or six hundred thousand dollars a year. I said, but I can't be on their timetable. We need to sit down and talk to the client and figure out what is your business model, what is my business model, and how do we align that? And those are crucial meetings that people don't want to have. And then it doesn't matter if you're an owner of a multi-million dollar company or a multi-billion dollar company, or you're an owner of a small local business, cash flow is capital. You need you need that cash flow. And everything hinges on your cash flow. And what happens in normal situations is I, and I'm bad at this, I'm actually, a, I play this game pretty well. I look at the pain thresholds. So when my supplier says, You have to pay within 30 days, but gives me 60 day lenience, then I pay at 60 days. If they complain at 40, I pay at 40 or I pay at 39. So they're never complaining. They think I'm the cat's meow, but I have an extra couple of days reserve, right? Yeah. And that's human nature for sure. You push the boundaries. It's about like being a kid with the parents, you know, you can push one so far and you can push the one a little bit further. Um, but, but the, I think you're hitting a really good thing. And I think I've heard cash is king, basically. That's the, the thing that's coming, you know. Um, so for businesses that are struggling out there, what are the practical steps? You've, you've talked about communication, but what about if it gets to a point where, they're not being paid. They've got the open communication, but clearly this company doesn't really want to pay because maybe they've got cash flow problems and they're just hedging their bets. What other pressure can you put on companies to be able to sort of get them to say, look, come to the table. At least let's get a dialogue going that we can get this money paid because otherwise you go under. It's as simple as that if you're a small business. That's right. So you have to be on it. And what you need to do upfront before you accept the sales is clearly determine terms of the sale. And this is where people fall down. So you spend a lot of time creating all these terms and conditions ahead of time. And once there's a problem, you tend to forget that you had terms and conditions and the client had signed for that. And this is this gray area where, well, my purchase terms and conditions supersede your sales terms and conditions and it depends on who got the first one off the table that's that's a legal problem so deal with that that way where i find the biggest struggle is that people do not pick up the phone they still use text and they'll use capitals when they're mad or they'll use emojis when they're mad people forget that in conflict situations the conflict only explodes if there's no communication and sometimes just picking up the phone and saying guys what's going on helps dramatically. So I've got a I've got an approach to business and my approach from a let's say I'm a wholesaler or or I'm a sales or a distribution company. If my client sees me as their business partner, I will do business with them. If they see me as a supplier, I don't even want their business. And people look at me and they laugh at oh, you can't do that. Oh yes, I sit down and actually physically tell them how do you see me? 
And it's about aligning your core values and your business values with the other person's core values and business values. If you have to jump through four or five hundred hoops just to make the sales, is the sales worth it? Yeah, you know, and that's a really good point you make because investment is is a two-way thing. I mean, I, I had an expression somebody told me, it's like having a cash register or a till and you go cha-ching and you keep taking the cash out. But at some stage, you've got to put the cash back into that uh, cash register. And that is a really important thing about a business relationship. And the other thing I've noticed as well, dealing with some local companies here in uh, in Alberta, actually, the ones that really get my vote, the ones where I build my confidence and I invest in them, the ones that go that slightly extra mile, it's not a lot, but that slightly, you know, that, that phone call after five o'clock in the evening say, David, really sorry I didn't get back to you, but here's the information you need. I'm on it and I'll be back to you tomorrow. And they get back to you tomorrow. It's it's not so much what you say, it's the actions that you do that rebuild that commitment and long-term investment in each other. You know, that's so, so important in business. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So you asked about how do I deal with bad creditors or bad debt? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to know some practical tips to, to let the listeners know. Very simple. I had a, another client, a contractor who wasn't paying his bills, $80,000. I pick up the phone. I call him a couple of times. I send him a couple of emails. I said, guys, if there's something in your business process that does not align with my business process, let's sit down and discuss it. I'll take a plane because he was far up north. I'll take a plane. We'll sit down. We'll have lunch. Lunch is on me. I will invest that time and effort. Let's do a face-to-face, and this is crucial because then you can see on a face-to-face basis exactly what they're doing. Zoom is a perfect example. You can see the top half, but you don't know if they're kicking the tables underneath or just crossing their toes, just saying what you want to hear, right? So face-to-face, and in COVID, it's a little bit more difficult, but face-to-face. This gentleman kept on blowing me off. So the last email was, listen, you're apparently not willing to sit down. You're apparently not seeing the gravity of this problem. You are now becoming a risk for my organization. I'm going to send you to collections. I've tried everything that you wanted. I am done. Apparently, this does not work for you. Send him to collections and collections took 10 points off the top. So that was eight grand, but I got my money. And I got it within 10 days. If people don't want to hear, eventually you have to just hammer down. So what then happens is, like my sales guy said, you lose the customer. I lost the customer. Two weeks later, there weren't a customer. Three weeks later, the guy that was buying from us gives me a call. His name is Blake. He says, Remco, I need this. Can you get me a couple of pallets or a half a truckload of product to Nova Scotia? Not a problem. I said, that's about eight grand or nine grand worth of material or 10 grand in total. I said, you're going to have to pay up front. He says, not a problem. Here's my credit card. And he paid up front 10 grand. So, okay, so what you're really saying is don't be frightened to adjust the goalposts. You know, the relationship's going along. They've they've kind of failed you a little bit by not keeping to their side of the bargain. You, you have to be hard-nosed about it, get your money in the, the door, but then always leave the door open. Is that the point, but on different terms? That's correct. And because you're clear in your communication, you don't have to worry about it. You have your sales terms and conditions. They have their purchase terms and conditions. There's one, if you've signed theirs, they sign mine. It's crystal clear that's the basis of moving forward. If one of the parties thinks they can go completely left field, you have broken that trust. If I do the same thing, I expect my client to give me a call and say, you said it was going to be here at this date. You know everything hinges on this. Why didn't you tell me? Now I'm in trouble. I understand that frustration. And this is what I've said to a lot of my clients in all aspects of business. The minute there's a problem, I expect a phone call. I will take care of it. If I don't take care of it, within a couple of days, you make the second phone call to my boss to get me fired. End of story. But the flip side is, if you've had a problem for a month, 
don't call me anymore. And the reason why is people get so frustrated with that problem. Why is he not calling? Why is he not calling? But as far as I know, I don't have ESP. I, I can't mind melt and mind read. I'm not a Vulcan. I don't know. <laughs> so you need to help me. And this is where the crux is. You need to be my business partner. I look out for your best interest. You should look out for my best interest. And then the crucial thing is price. Price is Correct. never important. Correct. It's fourth on the list. So set it up properly. Set up your business practices properly. Clear, concise communication. Say what you're going to do and do what you say. And if something happens in this process, be open about it. Talk to your client. No fear. I, I agree with you totally. I think you're absolutely yes. It's that simple. The, the easy thing then is you never have to worry about what lie did I tell? Because... You've just been honest and they'll never catch you. And I don't mean this in a negative, but they'll never catch you. Oh, you're always trying to do this or that. So you're not the, and I hope I don't offend any really good car salesman, but you're not the used car salesman or the snake oil skin salesman. You're just honest. And this goes from the top of the organization to the bottom of the organization. Everybody in this area needs to be on the same page. And if you have a culture of being customer service related, but on a very business mm -hmm. partnership basis, business will last a long time and you help each other out. Listen, I'm going to I'm going to direct us back to something that was quite interesting. So I picked up the fact that you did mention about your good lady having a business, which is in, I think, in mission. And uh, you did allude to that very, very slightly. And uh, I want to know a little bit about that. Well, first of all, what's your good lady's name? My wife's name is Mady. Ah. And she has put up with me for the last 37 years. So either she's numb or I use the doghouse enough. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> so we have a very fun relationship. She's extremely smart. And that's the other thing. I always need to be kept on my toes and she keeps me on my toes on a daily basis. So we have a very, very fun relationship. I don't care what anybody says. She's my soulmate. That's phenomenal. So she started a yarn store just under six years ago. And we came into some capital. So she says, I want to start this store. So I thought, yeah, nobody better to do this. Her background is logistics and designer. So she's a graphic designer. So she has a bachelor's degree in graphic design. So she can do her own website and she can do her own marketing material. So she's been doing that. And when COVID hit, we were doing... 50% increase in sales every year and doing quite nicely. She hadn't paid herself a salary for the first three, four years. You know how that goes, working long hours, not paying, but paying all the bills, keeping everything running. And then COVID hit. And this is, I think, where it's crucial for a business is to step back and say, okay, so what do I do now? She already had an online presence, but a smaller online presence. So she put in huge amount of hours to late in the morning to put all her products online. Needless to say, I think she has increased her sales fivefold. It's not even funny. She brought in well over a thousand new customers throughout North America. Her service is next to none. She has five solid five-star reviews on Google. Uh, she's always helping clients. She's very customer-oriented, but she has the Dutch directness. So she just tells the customer honestly and openly what's going on. And her customers love her. It's so bad. It's my store too, because we're part ownership and it's an incorporation by chance. It's so bad that customers come in, 
with friends and say, this is my store. I will show you my store. Here is where I sit and knit in my store. So it's almost like a cult following. And wow. yes, she, she does everything for her clients and her clients do literally everything for her. She has some clients that will actually come into the store and maybe says, I got to do something in the back. Uh, can you mind the store for a minute? Oh yeah. And they'll Love take it. off their jacket and they'll mind the store for her. So out of interest, what's the name of her store if you don't mind mentioning it's it? It's Trendy or Whatnot. And then Not is K-N-O-T. That makes sense. Yeah. And and that's based in Mission, did you that's say? That's yeah? based in Mission on the main strip. Listen, one other thing, because I, I know time is rolling on. I want to just ask you a couple of the questions. I, I want you to put you back to when you were 18 again. And I want you to just let me know what you would tell your 18-year-old self about life and about business. What would be the advice that you would Stay give yourself? Stay in school, become a civil engineer, and do major projects with contractors. I just love solving problems. And I should have been a civil engineer back then. This is my personal experience. Civil engineers, when they're on these massive projects and your project manager on these huge bridge projects, all you're doing all day long is solving problems. And I have found in my career that whenever there's a problem, everybody steps back and I step forward. What do you mean problem? What are we looking at here? So automatically now when there's a problem, they go here, Remco, there's, you solve it. And it's been happening all my life. Same problem with clients, with technical problems. They just give it to me. So my 18-year-old self should just get his act together and then go to university, study to become a civil engineer, and then go work for a large contractor building massive projects. I'm very simple. I got very simple requests and then drive a big <laughs> pickup truck. I just, I just love big trucks. <laughs> well, that's phenomenal. And you know what? I think that that really sums it up. You did it in a very short succession, three great points that you made. And I think David Hoer, I think it was one of your good colleagues who made a comment about you on your yeah. website, is that you, you said Remco can think across many silos. And I think that really sums you up. The, the boundaries aren't necessarily there. You don't see the boundaries. You just see the whole. And I think that really sums it up from a business point of view, how you approach business. Listen, I, I want to thank you so much because it's been a very refreshing approach to business, which uh, I must admit really chimes with me, you know, from being where we're both from. But also what I love about it, and I think this is the thing I'd like to sum it up, is that you are, as one of your other colleagues said, I think it was Donna Tennant made this comment about you, is you're an out-of-the-box thinker. And I think you've just so proved that. just before you... What's a box? What's a box? <laughs> <laughs> no, stop it. You're playing with me. <laughs> but, but you know, really summing it up, I think that's, um, for me, has been the clarity that's come through from our chat today is that you you don't get right into the woods. You kind of pull back a little bit and you see, okay, I can see the acreage in front of me. Now I can see the roots in. And then you get into the woods and you start to, you know, prune back the trees and move things around and replant. I think that's the thing. It's, it's quite an organic approach, which is quite refreshing. And I think that's the only approach you can take. Uh, I've said this about one of the companies that are restructured. It grows organically. And it's like a tree that's never been pruned. There's sticks, there's there's branches, there's trunks everywhere. So now you have to bring it back. You have to make it healthy again. So go back to your core. What is your core essence? And let's build off of the core. And just having all these loads go everywhere. Well, there's an opportunity, but does it fit the culture? Does it fit the business? And then once you've defined your culture and once you've defined your core essence, stick with it. Just because something, there's a newer car on the block or there's a new kid on the block, you don't need to 
restructure everything. Just look at it from that point. Just what do I need to do to keep it there? Create a business plan. Create a plan for in, for a year, three years, five years, ten years out, and stick to it. That could be a big plan. It could be a small plan. And the funny thing about business, and then I'll wrap it up, is that every year we have these new ideas about business. But the basic truth of the matter is you have costs on the one end. They don't go away to do business. And you need clients to pay your business. Paying customers. That's the simple truth of the matter. And how you get from A to B doesn't matter, but you need customers. Well, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I think I love your straightforward approach. I wouldn't call it simplistic. I call it very straightforward and very clear. Well, Remco Bergman, thank you so much from Tauk and Consulting. It's been a real pleasure to actually talk with you today. And I hope uh, in the future we can come back in and, uh, and have another chat. I'd love to do that. And if you want a, if you want a really smart perspective... You should have a chat with Mady. She that's the smart one. <laughs> there you are. We're already set up for another podcast. How about that? All right, you take care, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure. You've been listening to On Another Track with David Wilson. My guest today was Remco Bergman of TOWK Consulting. Your compass to success through innovative business solutions. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in the series. Just look out for On Another Track with David Wilson on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BritCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated, keeping us safe on the roads of North America.